I encourage you now, as you are able, as you have your copy of God's Holy Word, to take it up and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, as we continue preaching through this series of messages from this epistle. I'll begin reading this morning at verse 4 and read all the way through verse 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. The very word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we come now to the hearing and the preaching of your word with thanksgiving. All of us gathered here before your face are keenly and even shamefully aware of our struggles with sin. And this awareness fills us again with thanksgiving for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For now, in Christ Jesus, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and have forgiveness of our sins and have been clothed in His perfect righteousness. Therefore, apply the word to each of our lives to sanctify us to correct the motivations of our hearts and to cleanse the thoughts of our minds and to bring us evermore into conformity with the risen Lord Jesus. And this we ask in His mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. I hope you know by now we do try to be very deliberate about the liturgy and how we approach the worship of our God. And I want to assure you that the repeated verse in our meditation from Ephesians 4 was unintentional. No hidden message there, so that was my fault. And I feel like I need to to confess something or at least be transparent about something this morning. Um, Many of you, I suspect, have grown up in a church tradition where where there is this... uh, need or, or, or cultural expectation to have a life verse. Do you have a life verse? Did you as a young person or even now have a verse that's like your go-to verse that when someone asks you, what is your life verse? You're able to say, oh, I know what my life verse is. Now, I know there are several different views on that, and I, I would love to say my life verse is all of God's verses. They're all applicable, and they're all good, and they're all our verses that He has given to us. But here, before you, is Philippians 4.8. And, and during those times when 
when there was an expectation of a life verse, I found myself going back time and time again to Philippians 4.8. It has been one of those verses that I go to and meditate upon, and I think that's probably an indication that it's a verse that I so desperately need. And as I make this confession, I will also confess that it has been particularly difficult to assemble a message here for you. And perhaps it's because as I read these verses, they are rather self-evident. Here's a list of virtues. Think on these things. Follow after the example of Paul. Do it. And yet, at a minimum, at a very minimum, this message gives us the opportunity to pause and to consider deeply, one by one, these virtues and to consider the Word of God and to meditate on these things in the preaching of the Word and to consider these virtues and to put them in our mind and, and remember them more deeply. And so virtue, that's an interesting word. It's sort of the theme of this message. Virtue is not a term we hear or even use very often these days. Perhaps it's the, the relativism that permeates the culture around us, a culture that, that doesn't even believe that there is such a thing as virtue. Or more likely, the culture has taken the things that are quite opposite of virtue and elevated them to a place of honor that rightly belongs to the virtuous. Or maybe the problem is that we don't quite have a good grasp or definition of what true virtue is that has relegated this word to the, to the corner of our vocabulary where it's presently collecting a bit of dust, dust. But whatever the case, before we make our way into the text and encounter this word that the apostle uses, let us attempt to shore up our understanding of this word just a little bit. A virtue is an excellent trait of character. It is a disposition so well entrenched in the one possessing the trait that, as it is said, it goes all the way down to the core of his being. Such virtue will notice, expect, value, feel, desire, choose, act, and react in certain characteristic ways. To possess a virtue is to be a person with a certain mindset and disposition. And a significant aspect of this mindset is the wholehearted acceptance of a distinctive range of considerations as reasons for our actions. For example, an honest person cannot be identified simply as one who practices honest dealing and does not cheat. If such actions are done merely because the person thinks that honesty is the best policy or because they fear being caught rather than through recognizing to do otherwise would be dishonest before the Lord as the relevant reason, they are not the actions of a virtuously honest person. Virtue is more than outward compliance with an established standard. It begins in the mind and heart and works its way out based on pure motives and rooted in conviction. Virtue is not natural to us and therefore must be cultivated, rehearsed, and practiced as we put off concerning our former conduct the old man 
which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and are renewed in the spirit of our minds as we put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Even that verse as we meditated upon earlier from Ephesians 4. Virtue rightly understood is the abiding character of Christ being consistently made manifest in His people in a multitude of circumstances. And so as Paul begins to draw to a close his letter to the Philippians, he is concerned to direct the church to live in accordance with the gospel, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit, and to put on Christ and to have the mind of Christ in all things. And as he does this, he brings seven commands to the forefront so that they will be sure to know what this looks like and know what they need to practice. And we have already covered the first five of these in verses 4 through 7. The first one is rejoice in the Lord always. And the second, repeated for emphasis, is again I will say rejoice. Third, let your gentleness be known to all men. And fourth, be anxious for nothing. And fifth, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And so that brings us to the final two commands that we will focus on in this message. Number six, he commands them to meditate, to think on these things, which follows a list of six very specific virtues and two all-encompassing categories. He commands them, number seven, to do the things which they have learned, received, and heard, and saw in Paul himself. So for this message, I will cover verse 8 under the heading, Virtuous Thinking, and verse 9 under the heading, Virtuous Living. Verse 8 opens with, finally, brethren. The word finally, Paul, with this word, he now moves to a concluding exhortation that focuses on putting into practice what he has taught and modeled for them. His careful crafting of verse 8 shows that Paul puts significant thought under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into its content and its expression. And as we see that Paul once again refers to the Philippians as brothers, this is a term that communicates not simply warmth, but it's a reminder to them that they are part of the very same spiritual family. To enable us better to understand the basic idea of the verse, we need to focus first on the basic command found in the verse, which occurs at the end. Meditate on these things, he says, he writes. Paul is calling for the Philippians to consider, ponder, let one's mind dwell on these things. What Paul has in mind when he speaks of these things is the list of eight graces or eight virtues, if you will, that comprise the first part of the verse. And so using a variety of terms, Paul describes the kind of virtues that our minds should be focusing on daily as we engage the battle against the onslaught of the enemy who loves to make our thoughts his playground. What we think about affects every part of our lives. It directs our loves and it precedes our actions. And so in a very real sense, you could say we are what we think. 
That's how important these things are. And so let us consider each of these things that we are to set our thoughts upon, beginning with the first one, which is whatever things are true. True. Simply put, Paul calls the Philippians to set their minds on whatever is in accordance with reality and fact. At the same time, he is stressing that we should not dwell on those things that are false. This is a basic principle of applying biblical commands. Whenever we encounter a command that, that where there is a command, there is also attending to that an implied command not to do the opposite. This call to contemplate things that are true is rooted in the fact that God Himself is truth. We read in Deuteronomy 32 these words, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice, a God of truth without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. Or these from Isaiah 65, So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall, thought, shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. God is a God of truth. Jesus Christ refers to Himself as the way, the truth, and the life because He is the fullest embodiment of grace and truth. And because God is true, His words are true. So an obvious application of the charge to set our minds on things that are true, is to set our minds on Scripture itself. But it seems unlikely Paul intends to restrict this concept to his words since the literal translation of Paul's words is whatever things are true. Using the, this phrase, he broadens the scope to anything that is true. Focusing on the things that are true is essential in the struggle to follow Christ in this fallen world. Falsehood, you see, is the currency in which our enemy deals. Jesus described Satan as a liar and the father of lies. Satan works to convince people of his lies. And so it is absolutely imperative that we set our minds on the things that are true instead. And along with this is the corollary, the need to reject whatever things are false. There, there is no embrace of things that are true without an accompanying repudiation of things that are false. Friends, set your minds and your thoughts on whatever is true. And as you do this, you are, you are tuning your consciences to be more sensitive to godliness and you embody the very character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, Paul commands, uses, expresses whatever things are noble. Noble. And by noble, Paul refers to anything that is, that is venerable and revered in character, whether if of, a, of a person or even the deeds of a person. It is a requirement for deacons and their wives. We find that in Scripture, often translated as reverent, as well as a description of what older men in the church are to be. It is a quality which elicits profound respect and honor. Paul and the Philippians lived in a culture where the pursuit of honor and the avoidance of shame 
were held in very high regard. But Paul here does not merely adopt this secular virtue. He instead reorients it with a gospel focus. Paul's emphasis is on the mind of a Christian. And thus the adjective is used here in the sense of that which is worthy of respect and honor from a Christian perspective. Our thoughts, affections, and wills are to be set on people or things or deeds that are honorable and worthy of respect. In this sense, it is easy to see that Paul is directing the Philippians' attention to those who walk according to the example they may have seen in Timothy or Epaphroditus, as we read earlier. But Paul's language here seems to to intentionally broaden the scope to anything that is honorable or worthy of respect. And as such, it is right and it is appropriate for believers to affirm such actions without the same, at the same time suggesting that in any way those actions are meritorious before God. Once again, the pursuit of the noble requires turning away from the ignoble and dishonorable. The world's cheap imitations of joy and in the superficial or, or the life wholly devoted to the pursuit of entertainment would be the opposite of devotion to noble things. The godly person is a glad person, but not a silly person. His focus on the serious truths of God give depth to his joy and to his character. And third, whatever things are just, just. In this context, the word just refers to something that is obligatory in view of the requirement of justice. But it is also the same word found in chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul says that it is right for him to think the way he does about the Philippians. Again, the scope of this category of just and right is quite broad, but ultimately God himself is the standard of what is just and right. And by his common grace in this world, unbelievers are also capable of doing things that are just and right. Thus, anything that is in accordance with God's will can at some level be referred to as just and right, and as such, is an appropriate subject of contemplation for believers. But you will never know what is just and right apart from the revelation of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Dedication to God's standards of justice sets a Christian apart from the world whose corrupted justice often boils down to rejection of God's laws and the embrace of status totalitarianism and all manner of perversions. While we are to respect all duly constituted authorities, the concept and practice of justice are to be defined by God and His Word, not by polls and elections. Our objective is God's glory and His honor, not some man-centered conception of utopia. We're to meditate upon and be motivated by the eternal and unchanging values rooted in the very character of our God. Fourth, whatever things are pure. Pure here refers to that which is chaste, modest, and not founded in carnality. It is that which was without fault, immaculate, and clean, Thus, it can be applied to to God's wisdom in James 3.17 or a wife's conduct in 1 Peter 2, no, 1 Peter 3, and Christ Himself in 1 John 3.3. 3. 
Paul calls believers to set their minds on things that are pure, things that are unstained and unpolluted. Of course, in one sense, everything in this creation is stained by sin. But that does not prevent Paul from exhorting the Philippians to focus their thoughts, their affections, and their wills on those things in this world that exhibit, albeit imperfectly, purity. With this focus on whatever things are pure, the Christian turns away from the world's impurity. The culture in which Paul lived was steeped, we need to know, in sexual immorality. Not unlike our contemporary culture, which is obsessed with sensuality and perversion, having no thought of God in spiritual realities. Christians who ponder whatever things are pure will, in doing so, free themselves from whatever is debased and debasing. And we, we need to be actively engaged in this labor of the mind. Indeed, it is a battle, a battle. So draw the sword of the word in this battle and seek both refuge and wisdom there. Know that you are fighting the good fight in thinking pure thoughts. And remember, I encourage you to remember always that God knows the secrets of your heart as you give thanks to Him for each and every victory in this most important battle. And fifth, whatever things are lovely, lovely. When Paul uses this word lovely, he is referring to anything that pertains to causing pleasure or delight. Things that are acceptable, friendly towards, and pleasing. Interestingly, this word is used nowhere else in the New Testament. By challenging the Philippians to focus their minds on things that are lovely, Paul is not simply asking them to think positively and avoid negative thoughts. Rather, it is a call to give, have our minds set on those things which bring delight to our hearts, hearts that have been set upon Christ and His attributes. More specifically in the Philippian context, this word may be particularly chosen to call them to focus on the grace of God at work in their fellow believers rather than to fixate on any obvious shortcomings. As such, it is another way of esteeming others better than yourselves, as we read in chapter 2, verse 3. The embrace of the lovely means the avoiding, avoidance and rejection of the base and the ugly. Sadly, much of, that, much of what passes for humor involves degradation and mocking whatever is lovely. Entire movies are devoted to a series of shameful incidents in the pursuit of laughs at all cost. Some comedians make careers of making fun of what is tender and what is lovely. The Christian is to cherish what God cherishes, including the tender beauties of nature and of human love. His devotion reaches the highest peaks in seeing the beauty of God Himself, dwelling on His perfections and excellencies, the very beauties that the world scorns. And as we read in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of of the Lord. This is lovely. And six, whatever things are of good report. 
like the previous adjective, the word here rendered good report occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. This word refers to speech that demonstrates cautious reserve or is carefully chosen out of respect for someone. Good report. As it is used here, it seems to emphasize not just speech, but anything that is worthy of commendation or praise and is proper to the context in which it is said or done. There may also be a sense of restraint involved, such that the emphasis falls on these things that are praiseworthy in light of their appropriateness to the occasion. Mention of the proper and commendable directs us to consider their opposites, the improper and the unworthy. One example would be the spectacle of bringing vulgar language into the pulpit and lurid confessions promoted as testimonies. Some of you probably have examples in your mind. But we need to note that the apostle referred to private sins of which it is shameful even to speak in Ephesians 5, verse 12. These should not be the Christian's focal point. Instead, we must set our minds on the graces that display the character of God Himself and on those things which are of good report and commendable. In doing so, we train our hearts to love these things and improve our ability to discern right from wrong. Seven, if there is any virtue. The noun translated virtue is a term that referred to consummate excellence or merit within a social context. In borrowing language from Isaiah 43, 21, Peter states that the believers proclaim the excellencies of Him whom you called out of the darkness into His marvelous light. It is also one of those traits that should characterize mature believers. I've already endeavored to lay the groundwork for a definition of virtue in the introduction, so I'll try not to belabor this term much further. While the New Testament speaks of various virtues, they are always, always rooted in a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. While many of the Philippians would have been familiar with this term in a secular sense, Paul's use of it here in this context provides a clear redefinition that rested away from its secular meaning. This Paul invites believers to set their minds on whatever displays excellence and is worthy of imitation, whether it it is the actions of others or the character of God Himself. Pursuit of that which strengthens godly character means a turning away from what weakens it. And some of these include love for the world and the world's acceptance and its values or cowardice in the face of unbelieving criticism, indulgent neglect of the hard and necessary, and yielding to whatever is easy and unimportant. All of these must be set aside, turned away from, in the pursuit of what God sees as virtuous and excellent. Eighth, and finally, if there's anything praiseworthy, praiseworthy. Paul used this same word in chapter 1, verse 11, for the ultimate result of believers being filled with the fruit of righteousness as the praise of God. Here he directs believers to focus their attention on anything that is worthy of commendation and as such is broad in its potential application. 
It is the pursuit of approval from God that frees people from enslavement to seeking it from others. Have you ever thought about that? Our Lord said that what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The diligent Christian will concern himself less with devotion to what the God-hating world adores and more with the cultivation of qualities of character and life that will receive God's well-done, good and faithful servant in the end. As Matthew Harmon puts it, an eye to the throne room of God is the cure to fascination with the circus of the world. I like that. I want to repeat it. An eye to the throne room of God is the cure to fascination with the circus of the world. As a caution, this, this list of virtues found in verse 8 is not to be confused with the, the modern-day emphasis on being positive or thinking positive thoughts. This is not the power of positive thinking from Norman Vincent Peale. Instead, this is a helpful guide for us to assess, to take inventory of what we allow to fill our minds and hearts. As such, it is part of the larger biblical teaching that we must be careful in what we allow our minds to dwell upon and what we fill them with. What are you putting into your minds? The Word tells us, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Proverbs 4, 23. And Jesus said, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Additionally, consider what Jesus teaches in Matthew 12, verses 34 and 35. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, Speak good things, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things, and an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. Thus, the issue here is not a simplistic think positively, but rather a recognition that what we set our minds and hearts upon inevitably shapes the way we speak and the way we act. These, tra these traits are the treasures that we are laying up in our hearts. And I need to point out that Jesus Christ Himself is the perfect embodiment of each one. He is the one who called Himself the way, the truth, and the life. Who is worthy of more honor or more noble than the one who emptied Himself and was obedient to the point of death on the cross and as a result received the name that is above every name? Jesus Christ is the true, righteous, and just one who lived a life of perfect obedience and gives that righteousness to His people in exchange for their sin. He is also the pure and spotless Lamb who offered Himself as a sin offering for His people so that they too might be pure in Him. And who is more lovely than Jesus Christ? The Lion of the tribe of Judah who defeats our enemies while at the same time being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No one is more commendable and of good report than Jesus Christ before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord of all things. In Jesus Christ, 
all the excellencies of God dwell in bodily form. And as such, they are to be proclaimed as praiseworthy to everyone we meet and even to our own minds. As the risen Lamb of God, Jesus Christ is worthy of our praise today, even as heavenly hosts right now praise Him as the one who has purchased a people for Himself from every tribe and language and people and nation, and who has made them a kingdom of priests to our God, so that they will reign on the earth. As your minds remain fixed on Jesus Christ, as the the very source and the very embodiment of these lovely realities, these excellent virtues, you cannot go wrong. And you can be confident that the God of peace will be with you as you do, conforming you more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so this brings us to our second heading, virtuous living, virtuous living. In verse 9, Paul concludes this section with a statement that not only summarizes what he has taught in this section, but also applies more broadly to the other parts of the letter where he has pointed to his own example of following Christ. As we see, this summary includes both a command and a promise. And the command is straightforward. Do the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me. In this command, Paul is referring to the consistent pattern of behavior that has been characteristic of his life. What Paul means by these things is explained in the clause that begins the verse. He singles out four actions that encompass the totality of what the Philippians' experience was with the Apostle Paul. So first, Paul says, do or practice what you have learned, what you have learned. In saying this, he is referring to the learning that has taken place specifically through his teaching ministry. While the emphasis falls on the content and application of his teaching, whether in person or through letters, this doesn't exclude the informal learning that takes place simply through observation in his life. Like uh, rabbinical students who carefully studied their master's teaching and put them into action, the Philippians or to recall what they have learned from Paul to enable them to live as followers of Christ. And second, Paul points to what the Philippians have received. received. And this is a verb that refers to accepting teaching or tradition that has been passed down. Paul uses this term in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, writing, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. As someone trained under Rabbi Gamaliel, Paul was very familiar with the Jewish practice of passing down teaching from rabbi to pupil. It seems likely that he took many of those same principles and used them in his own ministry, both in the context of personal discipleship and in his broader teaching ministry. The content of what was passed down was the gospel. The gospel and all that that means on both a personal and a corporate level. Third, Paul highlights the things the Philippians heard. 
while Paul certainly includes the content of what he taught and passed on to the Philippians, it also likely refers to anything and everything that they heard coming out of his mouth. As such, it includes his personal example of speech that was good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to its hearers. By reflecting on the things they heard coming from Paul's mouth, the Philippians would find a model for their own speech and their own lives. Fourth, Paul points to the things the Philippians had seen in me. He thus makes it clear that he was not merely interested in communicating information about Jesus, but also how to live as one of his followers. He invited them to observe his life and to see how his faith in Christ shaped everything he said and everything he did. It is a reminder of his constant challenge to the church, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And the resulting promise that comes from practicing these things is that the God of peace will be with you. Back in 4-7, Paul assured the Philippians that the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And here in verse 9, Paul turns the phrase around to speak of the God of peace. In other words, God is the one who produces the peace that surpasses all understanding and guards the hearts and minds of believers in Christ Jesus. God is the one who brings true peace. And it should be recalled that this peace is not merely a subjective emotional feeling, but instead refers to the reality that will exist when God brings to consummation all of His promises in a new heavens and a new earth. Because believers are in Christ Jesus, the embodiment of that peace, we can experience that peace in the present as we await for its consummation in the future. And it is this God of peace who will be with you. Throughout both the Old and New Testaments, God assures His people of His presence with them. It's a repeated theme throughout all of Scripture from beginning to end. God tells Abram that he will be his shield and later tells his son Isaac that he will be with him as a part of fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Similarly, he assures Jacob, who in turn assures Joseph. God strengthens Moses by telling him that he will be with him to lead the people out of Egypt. And as Joshua prepares to lead the people into the promised land, God assures him of his presence with him. In response to David's desire to build a house for God so that he might dwell among his people, God promises David a house, a dynasty, through which the Messiah would come. God later refers to that Davidic king as Emmanuel, or God with us. In announcing the birth of the Messiah to Joseph, the angel of the Lord refers to this very same promise which moves him not to divorce Mary. Shortly before His crucifixion, Jesus assures His disciples that He will send the Comforter to be with them. The resurrected Jesus assures the apostles of His presence with them throughout this age as they disciple the people of every nation. And in his description of the new heavens and the new earth, John records these words, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. When Paul assures the Philippians that the God of peace will be with them, 
he is utterly consistent with and drawing from this deep and wide stream of biblical truth that is meant to encourage and sustain God's people as they await the consummation of all His promises. Paul's call to imitation and assurance of God's presence speaks to all the three tenses of the Christian life, past, present, and future. Paul shows us his example as a means of encouraging our present, ongoing obedience while assuring us of God's future presence with us. Paul is confident in pointing to his own example of following Christ because in doing so, he is convinced they will see Christ in him. He brings together both the content of his teaching and the example of his own life to present a beautiful picture of the Christian life. And so in conclusion, we see in verses 8 and 9 two necessary but inseparable aspects of the Christian life. They are inseparable because focusing exclusively on the content of teaching and filling our heads with knowledge and right thoughts to the neglect of their practice risks the sort of knowledge that puffs up rather than edifies. At the same time, to focus on the pattern and practice of life without any regard for doctrine, a doctrine that motivates the practice, risks a moralism that fails to truly transform the heart. Both doctrine and practice must be held together if you are to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and share in His sufferings becoming like Him in His death. And the way you do this, the way we all do this, is through virtuous thinking and virtuous living coupled tightly together. So how can you do this? You need to remember the Lord your God and meditate upon His mighty acts and works and speak of them day after day, for His way is in the sanctuary. He has given to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Be diligent in your practice of faith to add knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness and charity to virtue. For if these things are yours and if they abound you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I exhort you, each and every one of you, to do more, much more, than meditate on the virtues we have just considered, but rather to meditate on these virtues as they are embodied in Christ, our perfect righteousness, and give them tangible expression in all of life. In practicing virtuous thinking and living, you're being diligent to make your calling and election sure, and you are doing that which is pleasing before God unto the praise and glory of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we thank You. We thank You and praise You for this Word so rich in comfort and in instruction. It's as we consider how easy it is for us to give our minds over to the things in this world that are false, dishonoring, unjust, impure, ugly, and disreputable, not having any virtue or that which is worthy of praise, we receive your instruction and ask that you would help us in our weakness. 
Empower us by the work of your Holy Spirit that we might be strengthened with new and holy desires and be found joyful in obedience to your good, good commands. And this we ask for the glory of our God and for the beauty of the gospel and for the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.